Empress Dowager Cixi, the Manchu girl who started her life off as a lowly concubine to somehow the most powerful woman in China. She was alive during the reigns of five Qing emperors and helped put three of them onto the dragon throne. In this episode, we're going to cover Cixi's rise to prominence in the Forbidden City, her regency over two emperors, her engineering of two coups and her contribution towards the downfall of the Qing dynasty. Empress Dowager Cixi was born on the 10th day of the 10th moon in 1835, or the 29th of November 1835. Cixi was born during the reign of Emperor Zhao Guang, the 8th emperor of the Qing dynasty, and her father was a minor government official, so the family was by no means living in immense luxury, but they weren't exactly part of the peasantry class either. What was in Cixi's and her family's favour though was that they were of Manchu descent. In China under Qing rule there were two main ethnicities, the Manchus and the Han Chinese. Way back in 1644 the Manchus overthrew the Ming dynasty who was ruling over China at the time and established Qing rule. The Manchus quickly established themselves as the ruling class and had certain legal privileges over the indigenous Han Chinese even though Han Chinese outnumbered the Manchus 100 to 1. As Chisi's family descended from the Yehanara clan, they were a part of the Manchu elite. In her younger years, Cixi learnt how to read and write a little Chinese, which was unusual for women in the Qing dynasty. Cixi also grew up to be considered quite the beauty, which turned out to be very advantageous in 1850, when Emperor Zhao Guang passed away. His 19-year-old son, Xianfeng, succeeded him to the dragon throne. So Manchu girls from all across the country were summoned to the Forbidden City for the coveted opportunity of being picked to be one of the new emperor's consorts, including Cixi. Thus, Cixi made her way to the Forbidden City when she was around 15 years old with dozens of other Manchu girls. There was a strict criteria with which a girl was measured in terms of her suitability for the role of imperial consort. Was she from a good family? What was her character like? And was her horoscope compatible with the emperor's? Well, it seemed like Cixi ticked all of those boxes because she was chosen to be one of Xianfeng's concubines. However, just because Cixi was now an imperial consort, which was a great honour at the time, that didn't mean that she had got her happy ending. This was just the beginning. Because Cixi was picked as an imperial consort along with a bunch of other Manchu girls, she was just one of many women quote-unquote married to the emperor, all of whom would be fighting and vying for Xianfeng's attention. What made Cixi's situation worse was that she was only of the sixth rank at the time of her entry into the Forbidden City, out of the eight possible ranks, making her a pretty low-ranking concubine, and being of a certain rank mattered. The higher your rank, the better your lodgings, the nicer your clothes, the more maids you could have and the more food you could have. As it happened, Cixi only had four maids at her disposal. She could only eat three kilograms of meat a day and she didn't even have her personal cow. And let's be honest, if you don't have your personal cow, it really must be a life half lived. And Cixi didn't really seem to even exist in Xianfeng's eyes and was for the most part overlooked by the young emperor. 
And also, Xianfeng was not the most disciplined of emperors. He would much rather sneak out of the Forbidden City and visit all of the establishments that the outer city had to offer, including seeking out the company of Han Chinese prostitutes. And I think that's absolutely disgraceful. He already has a harem of women just waiting to throw themselves at him, and yet he wants to have his cake and eat it. Typical. But... Cixi made a very important friend out of the Empress Zhen. She had joined the Imperial Harim at the same time as Cixi, but had a very different trajectory. As soon as she entered the Forbidden City, she was placed at the fourth rank and quickly became Xianfeng's Empress, the highest on the totem pole of the Imperial Harim. And this friendship was significant because it helped Cixi gain Xianfeng's attention, take notice of her and gain his favour. Two years after her entry into the Imperial Harim, Cixi was promoted to the fifth rank and was named Concubine Yi, meaning exemplary. What was even more important though was that on the 27th of April 1856, Cixi gave birth to Xianfeng's only son, Zaichun. Cixi had achieved what no other concubine had done and would do, give the emperor a son. As a result, Cixi was promoted to an even higher rank and was the highest ranking concubine, second only to her friend the empress. While Cixi's star was rising, the Qing emperor's fortunes were quickly fading. Because in the same year that Prince Zaichun was born, the Second Opium War had begun. What started all of this was the Arrow Incident, where a merchant ship that had been captained by an Englishman had been raided by Chinese officials because they thought that it was a pirate ship. This incident led to retaliation by the Western powers. The British and French worked together to fight China and in 1858 they captured the Dagu forts. This was enough for Xianfeng to send two officials to negotiate with the British and French and the agreement that was eventually struck was this. More ports were to be opened to the West, free trade was now allowed to the interior, the import of opium was now also legal. Essentially, the British and French got their own way. The next year, Lord Elgin went to Beijing to ratify this agreement, but Xianfeng decided to change his mind and said that he wasn't going to sign anything. In 1860, the Allies returned to China with an army and with new terms. They wanted Tianjin as another trading port and payment of war reparations. They recaptured the Dagu fort and started making their way into China. The situation got so dire that Xianfeng ultimately put his younger brother, Prince Gong, in charge in Beijing and fled to Chengde, 200 kilometres to the northeast with Cixi and the royal retinue. In Beijing, Prince Gong signed the Treaty of Beijing, where all of the Allied demands were met. This included giving each country 8 million taels and the ratification of the original treaty, the Treaty of Tianjin. Before Xianfeng could return to Beijing, though, he passed away on the 22nd of August, 1861. Now, Cixi's five-year-old son, Zaichun, was to be emperor. Emperor Tongzhi, which means order and prosperity. As a minor, though, he wasn't fit to rule just yet. Before he died, Xianfeng put Zaichun under the care of a board of eight regents who would be in charge of the country until he became of age. Empress Shen automatically became the Empress Dowager, and the board of regents also promoted Cixi as the biological mother of the new emperor to Empress Dowager as well. 
Empress Zhen became Empress Dowager Ci'an, meaning kindly and serene. Cixi, who was known as Concubine Yi at the time, became what history now knows her as Empress Dowager Cixi, meaning kindly and joyous. Just because they became Dowager Empresses did not mean that they had any political power. Political influence still remained in the hands of the eight regions. Cixi and Ci'an colluded together to set in motion a coup and roped in Prince Gong for political aid. The coup would take place in the procession to bring Xianfeng's coffin back to Beijing and the regents would be taking part in this procession. When they arrived in Beijing, the regents were met with an edict that said that they were to be stripped of their offices because they were to blame for the tumult in China. Three of them were also sentenced to death, and the new regency was announced, headed up by the two Dowager Empresses, listening behind screens to reports on government affairs. Both Dowager Empresses would oversee their regency behind yellow curtains, where they would be making key decisions, and the yellow curtain symbolised that they didn't actually rule themselves, but on behalf of the boy emperor. The Empresses made a big show and dance of their reluctance to assume the regency, saying that... Our assumption to the regency was utterly contrary to our wishes, but we have complied with the urgent request of our princes and ministers. They followed this up with assuring the Chinese people that as soon as the emperor came of age, he would take over royal affairs and the empresses would stand back to allow for his assumption to the throne. While both Cixi and Ci'an technically held equal power as regents, they had very clear responsibilities that they were in charge of. Cixi, being the literate, more politically savvy of the two, would deal with the strategy, decision-making side of things. Ci'an did the more admin things, like approving official posts and being more involved with the imperial harem. This worked really well because Cixi and Ci'an would keep this system going until 1881, when Ci'an passed away. And I think it's just so crazy to think that at the time of the coup, Cixi was only 25 years old she was very young and one of the first things that she had to deal with was the Taiping rebellion the Taiping rebels mostly consisted of christian peasants who were fighting against qing rule and had captured a sizable portion of chinese territory they'd go around burning villages and towns basically laying waste to the land that they captured now they were at peace Cixi could capitalise off of her newfound friendships with the Western powers who could help her in crushing the Taiping rebels. The American Frederick Townsend Ward trained an army of thousands of Chinese with Western soldiers and the Western military style, which led to subsequent victories and battle against the Taiping rebels. Cixi was so delighted with Fred that she gave the army the name of the Ever Victorious Army. And when Ward was killed in battle later, Cixi had a temple built in his honour which just goes to show how highly she thought of him. But one after one, the Chinese army, with the help of the West, defeated the Taiping rebels. After the end of the Taiping rebellion, other rebellions were squashed and peace was restored internally under Cixi's regency. Now that Cixi had secured peace, she could now concentrate on implementing a series of reforms that would strengthen China's standing on the international stage, which would become known as the Tongzhu Restoration. And there were definitely signs of progress being made. Cixi wanted to strengthen the imperial army, so foreigners were brought in to train Chinese soldiers and improve military technology. There was also the beginning of a modern Chinese navy, a school for foreign languages and a bureau of foreign affairs, which would be known as the Zongle Yamen. However, there were limits to Cixi's and other officials' willingness to modernise China. 
Robert Hart, who had been hired as the Inspector General of Chinese Maritime Customs, provided a memorandum which was deeply critical of China's current state and recommended certain modernisation projects to make the Qing Empire more competitive internationally. For example, Hart suggested that China should build railways and telegraphs, but both Tusi and her advisers had serious misgivings about these recommendations. For one, there was the concern that if China built these railways, they could easily be set upon by Western armies if war broke out again. Also, Chinese society was heavily influenced by Confucian ideas, which went against these very modernisation projects. The land on which railway lines were proposed to be used was considered sacred by many Chinese, as they were the sites where they would bury their family members. So, while the Tongzhou restoration showed attempts made by Tusi and her administration to modernise China, they were really restricted by traditional ideas of a Confucian society, and the reforms just didn't go far enough to compete with foreign powers. The failure of the Tongzhou restoration was thrust into the spotlight in the summer of 1870, and it was the first real diplomatic crisis that Tusi had to tackle. Previous treaties that China was forced to sign provided that the Qing Empire had to tolerate the presence of Christian missionaries. However, the Chinese were deeply suspicious of what they saw as encroaching foreigners and riots popped up throughout China in defiance of those missionaries. In Tianjin, rumours had been circulating that the Christian missionaries were kidnapping children, using their organs for medicine and photography under the pretense of taking in orphans and abandoned children. Thousands of Chinese went to the streets and that caused chaos. The French consul Henri Fontanier and his chancellor were beaten to death, as well as 30 to 40 Chinese Catholic converts and 21 foreigners. In the Chinese crowd's defence, Henri Fontanier had threatened the leading official intention as well as firing a shot in the crowd and that's just not going to help matters at all. In fact, it just led to chaos. Missionary property was also burned down and this incident became known as the Tianjin Massacre. When the news reached Beijing, Tixi immediately condemned the killings and sent officials to try and ease tensions. This included sending Marcus Zhengguofan to arrest the riot leaders and enact justice. The French, who were furious, sent gunboats out to the Dagu forts and fired warning shots, essentially that being a threat that they would go to war if the situation wasn't resolved in a manner that was satisfactory to them. Tsi also sent Li Hongzhang, one of her closest advisers, to the coast in order to defuse the situation. In the end, the French were pacified by the execution of the murderers, as well as compensation for the victims and damage to church property. Luckily, these terms were accepted by the French, and it was helpful that France was also at war with Russia, so they couldn't really afford to go to war with China as well. When the Tianjin massacre situation had come to a close, Emperor Tongzhi was now 14, almost a man, and had received the best education under his tutors. However, he was far from a model student. The teenage emperor did not really care about his studies, and one of his tutors, Wang Tonghe, complained in his diary that Tongzhi struggled to concentrate and he would get easily distracted during his lessons. He wrote that the emperor had inherited his mother's willfulness, but also his father's wandering spirits. 
Emperor Tongzhi also inherited his father's love of sneaking out of the Forbidden City and seeking the company of prostitutes, of which they were rumoured, rumoured to be male and female. Who knows how true that is? He seemed so uninterested in committing himself to learning the fundamentals of being a good emperor that his tutor wrote in his diary, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? In 1872, Tongzhi celebrated his 16th birthday and was now of a marriageable age. Like Cixi had done all of those years ago, all eligible Manchu girls were summoned to the palace to be picked for the honour of being the emperor's imperial consort. Ultimately, an 18-year-old girl was considered appropriate to be the new empress, and it was also noted that Tongzhi himself was enamoured by the girl's beauty. Of course, other girls were chosen to be Tongzhi's imperial consorts, including the future empress's aunts. Apparently, Tsi did not like the 18-year-old girl, and later said that we made a mistake in selecting a wife for him. How could we tell that her beauty was false? She was so very beautiful, but she hated us, so who knows what went on there. But if your son tells you that that's the girl for him, it's very difficult for you as a mother to say no. So, on the 20th of October, 1872, Emperor Tongzhi was married. All the while, astrologers had been working to find an auspicious date for Tongzhi to officially take up his position as emperor, and the date that they chose was the 23rd of February 1873. He was 16 years old at the time and thoroughly unprepared for the role, and I can't blame him at 16 years old being expected to rule a whole kingdom is a very big ask particularly for a kid that just wants to hang out with prostitutes. But Cixi, as she had promised the Chinese people years ago, dutifully stepped back from her regency and entered into retirement. Now, Cixi had to stand back while she watched her son effectively neglect all of his royal duties. As the novelty of being in power wore off, the emperor woke up later and later, received fewer people in audience, and while he did attend meetings, he just wasn't present. He just didn't care. And instead, Tongzhi found greater enjoyment in, as he did while he was a young boy, sneaking out of the Forbidden City and going on crazy nights out with his eunuchs that had been by him all this time. What was worse and did not look good for Tursi was that Tongzhi gifted Tursi with a garden palace for her 40th birthday, which would be rebuilt for her retirement. How crazy that she was 40 when she retired. Um, but this garden palace was the Yuan Mingyuan, the old summer palace, which had been abandoned for 12 years. However, these plans were met with heavy criticism, with officials arguing that this project would cost too much money, money that China could not afford to give, given that they had only just come out of the other side of rebellion and war. The emperor's negligence got so serious that the princes Gong and Chun confronted him and tried to get him to see the error of his ways. But Tongzhi got defensive. He accused the princes of bullying him and other misdemeanors that effectively constituted to high treason and fired them both from their posts. The princes immediately went to Tursi, begging her to interfere in what Tongzhi was doing, because as his mother, even though she was retired, could still tell the emperor off, essentially, and put him in his place. Tursi visited Tongzhi after the princes had appealed to her and gave him a good telling off, as she should have done, and in the end, the emperor took back the princes into the fold. 
What's more, the reconstruction project of the old summer palace was finally abandoned by Tongzhe, so really the princes got what they wanted. In the end though, Tongzhe's excessive lifestyle finally caught up with him when in December 1874, he fell ill and was diagnosed with smallpox. An official decree in Tongzhe's name was produced which once again put the Dowager Empresses in charge. It seemed like Tongzhe would recover at one point but his blisters started to grow, burst, fester, lovely and on the 12th of January 1875 Emperor Tongzhe passed away at 19 years old with his mother Tsi by his side. Tsi later reflected I thought I could be happy with my son as the emperor but unfortunately he died before he was 20 years of age. Since that time I've been a changed woman as all happiness was over as far as I was concerned when he died. Whatever Tsi's private feelings of grief were, she had to put them aside and establish control once again over the Qing Empire. The first thing that she had to do was name a new emperor. Tongzhe had not been able to produce an heir in his short time as emperor, so someone else had to be chosen. Tsi nominated the three-year-old Zai Tian, the son of Prince Chun, who she and Empress Tian adopted. Conveniently, Prince Chen's wife was Tsi's own sister. Tsi would later describe the young emperor as a very sickly child and could hardly walk. He was so thin and weak. You know his father was Prince Chen and his mother was my sister, so of course he was almost the same as my own son. In fact, I adopted him as such. On the 25th of February 1875, the young Zai Tian was formally pronounced Emperor Guangxu, the emperor of the glorious succession. Again, Cixi and Si'an would remain regents until Guangxu came of age, a situation that was identical to the one that Cixi enjoyed under the reign of Emperor Tongzhe. Meanwhile, Empress Tongzhe's empress was interestingly not made Empress Dowager as was the custom. Apparently, the empress committed suicide as her father recommended her do, but in official documents, she died of a long illness. Now that she was back in power for the foreseeable future, Cixi set about continuing the modernisation efforts that she had started before her retirement. She ordered the first telegraph to be installed, a Chinese post office was introduced with stamps, and electricity had been installed in the Sea Palace. Cixi also reformed the nation's currency and started minting coins. Again, there were limits to Cixi's willingness to modernise China. She was still hesitant about commissioning a railway project because it was sacred land for Chinese families and it would be really expensive. One of her advisors, Li Hongzhang, also asked to build textile factories but Cixi said no on the basis that this would take away jobs for working Chinese women. In 1878, the diplomat Chung Ho was sent to Russia to negotiate for the return of the region of Ili. Under Chung Ho's agreement with Russia, it would cost China quite a bit of territory and 5 million rubles. This proposal was met with outrage by China and upon the diplomat's return, he was arrested, stripped from office and sentenced to death. That was how furious Cixi was with him. Chung Ho's saving grace, though, was Russia refusing to renegotiate terms of the treaty unless his life was spared, which was really good of Russia, to be fair. Another official was sent to Russia, where the treaty that was renegotiated was a lot more amenable to China, and Chung Ho's life was spared, so happy days. In April 1881, Cixi's co-regent, Empress Dowager Tian, passed away, and the general consensus is that it was caused by a stroke. 
Cersei now officially answered to no one, and power rested solely on her shoulders. During her second regency, the Qing Empire lost more and more territory. Annam and Vietnam, which were vassal states who would pay tribute to China, were lost to France. The Ryukyu Islands fell to Japan, Burma was taken over by Great Britain, and control over Korea was also being threatened by Japan. In 1882, riots erupted in Korea, and both the Chinese and Japanese armies were sent to calm things down. When the riots ended, a pro-Japanese coup took place in Korea, and Chinese soldiers had to be sent in again to suppress it. There were negotiations by the Chinese and the Japanese, and both sides agreed to withdraw their armies from Korea. Remember this. During Cixi's second regency, like his predecessor, the boy emperor by the name of Guangxu was given formal training in preparation for his assumption to the throne when he came of age. Once more, Wang Tonghe was charged with the emperor's education, where he found Guangxu a lot more willing to learn than Tongzhe. Wang Tonghe complimented Guangxu's extremely symmetrical and pleasing handwriting, and by the age of five, he could recite the classics aloud. However, Guangxu did not enjoy a close relationship with Cixi. When Cixian was alive, Guangxu looked up to her as much more of a mother figure than Cixi. In fact, Cixi told Guangxu to call her Papa Dearest when he was a boy and my royal father as he got older. But he definitely seemed to have all of the makings of a good emperor as a young child, a lot better than Tongzhe anyway, and he did show genuine concern for the Chinese people in audiences he would ask after them, how the harvest was, and while he appeared to be more sensible than Tongzhe, he didn't exactly have a very forceful personality. For one, Guangxu was always quite sickly and appeared to suffer from a lung condition. He had a really quiet voice, he was shy and had a stutter, he just didn't really have much kingly presence. And apparently, and I don't know how much this is true, when he became a teenager, the story goes that Guangxu would be turned on by percussion instruments and when he heard them in his sleep he'd have wet dreams again. I don't know how true this is but yeah. In 1886 the 15-year-old Guangxu was considered ready to assume office but under Cixi's guidance. She couldn't bear to relinquish control of the throne just yet and said that she would be Guangxu's guardian for a couple more years until he was really really ready. The following year, Manchu girls, for a third time in our story, were summoned to the Forbidden City to be chosen as imperial consorts. Longyu, Cixi's niece, was chosen to be empress, and her sisters Pearl and Jade were also chosen to be imperial concubines. Guangxu and Longyu were married on the 26th of February 1889, the same year that Cixi announced her official retirement. But there were certain conditions to her retirement. Tursi would retain the right to approve the appointment of senior officials, she'd be able to read state reports so that she was kept in the loop of the goings-on at court as well and throughout the Qing Empire. Guangxu would also visit Tursi every day to greet her and show respect. Now that she was retired again, Cixi once again set her sights on a lavish palace as her retirement home. She'd given up on the old summer palace, but she decided that she'd restore a palace called the Qingyuan, the Garden of Clear Ripples, and build the new summer palace there, which would be renamed to the Yihe Yuan. This project would allegedly cost 
tens of millions of tails and Tiersi apparently diverted funds from the navy in order to fund the project. While the summer palace was under construction, Tiersi lived in the sea palace which was a stone's throw away from the forbidden city. Even in her retirement, Tiersi enjoyed luxury and pomp with her household costing an eye-watering £6.5 million a year. Tiersi spent most of her time with her eunuchs and the young ladies at court. Now she didn't have to wake up at five or six in the morning for the morning meetings as she had done so in her regency but she could wake up whenever she wanted. Tiersi had a meticulous daily routine where she would religiously take care of her face and body to preserve as much of her youth as possible. Apparently Tiersi had begun balding a little so a wig was put over the thinning areas of her head which would then be decorated with flower arrangements. Even though Tiersi wasn't technically allowed to wear makeup as a widow, she still applied a bit of rouge and put on perfume to feel pretty. For breakfast, Tiersi would drink a bowl of hot milk with porridge, which apparently was breast milk, and she would keep wet nurses so that she could have some breast milky porridge. Tiersi now had time to pursue her hobbies, whereas she didn't have the time or energy for them during her time as regent. Tiersi was a lover of nature and she enjoyed walking the grounds of the palace or boating on the lake. Tiersi learned to paint from a Han Chinese woman, Lady Miao, and fostered the rise of Peking opera by having performers in the court and ordering opera houses to be erected in the royal palaces. What was even more pressing for Tiersi was her 60th birthday, and the 60th birthday for the mother of an emperor was a traditionally lavish affair, where they'd be showered with tributes and gifts, and every official was expected to contribute a quarter of their yearly salary to Tiersi's birthday fund, even when the rest of China was struggling with poverty and poor harvests. But that year, rebellion rose up in Korea against their Japanese and Chinese overlords. While the rebellion was squashed by the Japanese and Chinese troops, there was conflict over the reforms that should take place in Korea to prevent this from happening again. This led to outright war between China and Japan, officially declared by Li Hongzhang. But Japan kept forcing China to retreat further and further back, and on the 21st of November 1894, Port Arthur fell to the Japanese army. It was clear that China was losing the war and the situation got so bad that Tiersi had to cancel her birthday party, offering three million taels to the Navy purse. Peace talks began and China now lost Korea. They had to pay 200 million taels in reparations and until that was paid, Japan would occupy the Chinese city of Weihaiwei. To pay Japan, China had to borrow money from Western powers and never one to waste an opportunity, Western powers capitalised on this political crisis. German and Russian naval vessels wormed their way into Chinese ports and the British demanded Wei Highway as soon as Japan had been paid their reparations. Amidst all of this, where was the emperor? He didn't really seem all that proactive or involved as he might have or probably should have been in the war. It was mainly Li Hongzhang who declared war on Japan. He made the key decisions and apparently he even concealed information from the emperor about the war. Guangxu did try and implement reform in China, heavily influenced by his tutor Wang Tonghe and the progressive Kang Youwei. Guangxu initiated the reform movement on the 11th of June 1898, which would become known as the Hundred Days Reform. Cixi was already suspicious of Wang Tonghe and incredibly concerned about his influence over the young emperor, so she brought about his dismissal, forcing the separation of the emperor and his beloved tutor. In his place, 
Kang Youwei became the person who Guangxu heavily relied upon and they would talk for hours about implementing change in China. For example, Kang Youwei managed to persuade Guangxu that he should create a Bureau of Institutions to completely transform the political system. And at first, Cixi approved of these reforms. The 100 Days Reform led to the founding of the University of Peking. It led to the creation of schools that taught practical skills like manual labour, which were previously looked down upon by Confucian values. Manchus were now encouraged to travel. The old examination system was abandoned. And journalists were even now allowed to write on politics. These reforms sound well and good, but they have been criticised for their lack of specificity. Guangxi was not one to be bogged down by the details, and it was very much left to the local officials to work out the logistics of everything. And I'm sorry to say that most of them did nothing. Cixi could tolerate a lot of these reforms, but Guangxi found her limit when he tried to dismiss Li Hongzhang from the Zongli Yamen, as well as a slew of bureaus and officials who had been long established in their positions. All of these officials immediately appealed to Cixi to restore order at what they saw as madness in the Forbidden City. Cixi summoned Guangxi to her presence to essentially put him in his place and forbade Guangxi from seeing Kang Youwei ever again. In a moment of desperation, Guangxi sent urgent messages to supporters trying to muster up aid and effectively remove Cixi from power. However, Guangxi was outed by Ronglu, an official loyal to Cixi. When she heard of this plot, Cixi ordered the Chinese army, who was under her control, to enter into the capital and escort Guangxi to the island of Yingtai, where he was effectively placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. Guangxi's attendants were all changed and some eunuchs were executed. Cixi started making arrests, although, lucky for him, Kang Youwei, who Cixi felt was most responsible, had already left Beijing. Six men ended up being executed and they go down in history as the Six Gentlemen, so essentially they were considered martyrs for the cause. In Yingtai, the gates were locked, the windows were bricked off so that nobody could see in or enter Guangxi's prison and the emperor couldn't see out. Guangxi was in a gilded cage, but it was still a cage. The next day, a decree in Guangxi's name was given that Cixi would officially be his guardian again. Guangxi was now a puppet emperor. Decrees were signed in his name, but he had zero decision-making power. All of the power, once again, was in Cixi's hands. Cixi also got Guangxi to make a statement that because he was too ill to produce children naturally, he was now begging that she, Cixi, may be pleased to select some worthy person from among the princes of blood as heir. Even though Guangxi had gone against his adopted mother, they both still had to keep up the pretense that all was well in their relationship. Every day he would visit her and they'd go to morning audiences, even though Guangxi didn't really have a say in the matter and everybody knew that it was actually Cixi who was in charge. And I think it's really easy to see Cixi as really cruel and nasty in the sense that she's putting her adopted son on house arrest, stripping him of all of his power, which she shouldn't really be able to do. On the other hand though, I've put you on the throne. I'm the one who's responsible for all the power that you're enjoying and the luxury, and you're now wanting to bite the hand that feeds you. Not only that, you want to kill me for it, I'd be giving that boy hell. 
Either way, this must have been really difficult for the both of them psychologically. Cersei had to see and sit with a person who tried to undermine her power and who in her mind had tried to kill her. Guangxi was keeping up appearances with an adoptive mother who had never really shown him much actual maternal love and he would tighten the leash on him exponentially since the coup. Worse yet, Cersei forced Guangxi to sign the death warrants of his supporters and all of this really broke his spirit which already wasn't that strong. Lady Macdonald who'd been invited to the palace to celebrate Cersei's birthday along with other of the western ladies saw Guangxi and remarked that he was a sad-eyed delicate looking youth showing but little character in his face. He hardly raised his eyes during our reception. I do have to feel sorry for the boy because as an emperor you should be able to do what you want that's literally the job description and then there's this old woman who's already had her day busting your balls and it must have been frustrating at the same time Cersei never really took Guangxi in as her actual son it's really clear to see that he didn't consider Guangxi as her actual son as she did her biological son which is completely understandable but you know that saying where it's hard times create strong men, strong men create good times and good times create weak men, weak men create difficult times. I think that's exactly the case with Guangxu, Tongzhe and also Xianfeng. None of them had to fight their way to luxury. They were born into it. And being coddled by eunuchs and maids means that you never have to build that kind of forceful, kingly way about you where it's your opinion that matters and that's it. Cersei had to fight her way to power. She went from concubine to the most powerful woman in China. So she knew that she had to have a certain presence and charisma about her which commanded respect. Guangxu did not have that. Tongzhe did not have that because they were told all of their lives that they were mandated by God to be the emperor and they were the ones who had a God-given right to rule over the country. So really you don't have to earn your place on the throne because you've already been given it. So you get lazy and you don't foster the skills necessary to become a good ruler. Devil's advocate though, Cersei could have taken Guangxu a lot more under her wing and been like, this is what you do, this is my thinking behind this policy, this is how I handle the different competing opinions of the officials, this is what it is to become a ruler because she had the skills to be a good ruler but for some reason she did not impart that to her son or adopted son Guangxi. So if only she had a lot more motherly and had more of that parental instinct to teach children. Who knows what would have happened. Now that Tersi was in power, she had to deal with threats of violence domestically and internationally. In 1899, Italy demanded a naval station on Sanmen Bay, to which China gave a blunt no in reply. Cersei even said that they would go to war if necessary, and Italy quickly backed off, marking one of the few times that China successfully averted a political crisis. In her decree, she declared, Our empire is now labouring under great difficulties which are becoming daily more and more serious. 
the various powers cast upon us looks of tiger-like voracity, hustling each other in their endeavours to be the first to seize upon our innermost territories. They think that China, having neither money nor troops, would never venture to go to war with them. They fail to understand, however, that there are certain things that this empire can never consent to. Germany had also set up presence in areas of Shandong, with many local Chinese converting to Christianity, and a lot of it is because they would receive legal protection. That was an issue, though, because when judges ruled in favour of converts who had committed actual crimes, this led to riots and burnings of church property. That led to the local government penalising rioters and paying out the Christian missionaries. And it was just a horrible and vicious cycle. In one of these riots, Germany sent soldiers into some of the villages who set fire to hundreds of houses and shot villagers dead. For Chinese, these foreigners were the ones who were invading their lands and cultures and effectively trying to take over. The anti-Christian and anti-foreign sentiment were the basis with which the Society of the Righteous and Harmonious Gifts gained popularity in China. They're now known as the Boxers because a lot of these members practised martial arts. As the boxers became more and more popular, they numbered in the hundreds and thousands and essentially were a militant group. Their slogan said, support the Qing, destroy the foreigner. So it was very clear that they still wanted the Qing government in power. What they were against were foreign powers encroaching on their territory and culture. And they definitely destroyed. The boxers would go around burning railways and houses, kidnapping, murdering people, occupying buildings. And Tizi flip-flopped between what to do with them. On the one hand, they weren't going against Qing rule. And there were people in Tizi's own court who shared the boxers' anti-foreign views. On the other hand, Tizi was under increasing pressure from these very foreigners to do more than denounce the boxers and get rid of them which is understandable considering their own interests. To keep a very long story short, a lot of things happened, and on the 21st of June 1900, Tizi ended up declaring war on Great Britain, the United States, France, Germany, Italy, Austria, Belgium, Holland and Japan. And Tizi officially showed her open support for the boxes by integrating them into the Imperial Army. However, the military technology in China's possession could not hold a candle to that of the Western powers, and Allied troops kept pushing and pushing Qing troops further back. All the while, the boxers were running right again, started to destroy railways, trains, telegraph lines, and a part of this is because they were integrated so quickly into the Imperial Army, they just didn't have the kind of discipline and training required to be a really organised force. Boxers laid the Beijing legation quarter under siege where a lot of Westerners were residing. Tizi knew that no matter how the war turned out, it would be political madness to allow the boxers to get into the quarter and create even more chaos, potentially killing Westerners. So she ordered the boxers to end the siege and properly condemned them for the first time. Tizi also had the war firmly on her mind. She was running around like a headless chicken. She didn't know what to do as the Allied soldiers were closing in. She'd behead ministers she was angry with, sent frantic messages everywhere and get officials to advise her on what she should do next at very short notice. And when Beijing fell to the Allies, Tizi and the royal family had to flee the capital to safety and she ordered Li Hongzhang to negotiate with the Allies for peace. 
Cixi took the royal family with her, including Emperor Guangxu, the Empress and the heir apparent. There is the story that there wasn't enough space for one of the concubines, concubine Pearl, so Cixi ordered her to commit suicide. But the story goes that Cixi was just in a hurry, she just wasn't having it, and got one of the eunuchs to throw her down a well to the concubine's death. Because Tussi and the royal family had left in such a hurry, they hadn't packed any proper provisions like food and water to sustain everybody in the journey. So by the time they all reached their first stop, everybody was absolutely starving. It was such a fall from grace and I imagine that an outsider who saw the group would certainly not see them as the imperial family at first glance. Cixi eventually settled in the city of Xi'an in Shenzhi, which was the capital of many former Chinese dynasties. Even though Cixi had fled from Beijing though, everybody soon realised that the country was not going to run itself and that the Qing rulers had to stay in power. So the Western powers ultimately decided to frame the war as a rebellion that was caused by the boxers and the Qing rulers really didn't have a part to play in the war against the West. Also, Tsi would have to cooperate by taking part in the boxers' punishments. Some boxer leaders were stripped of their titles and named commoners. Some were given to Prince Tuan so that they could receive punishment. A peace treaty was drawn up, which provided that the Dagu forts would be destroyed. The route from the sea to Beijing would be occupied by foreign soldiers. The legation quarter would be fortified. The import of military weapons were banned and commercial treaties could be changed according to the foreigners' will. There was also the indemnity payment of 450 million taels. Tsi felt it was a good time to return to Beijing in January 1902, having been away from the capital for around a year and a half. Her return to Beijing was made into quite the ceremony. Tsi wanted to be seen in front of the general public, even waving to her subjects along the way, which was an unprecedented move for a Qing ruler. Now that she was back, Cixi really started to accelerate her modernisation plans. She got rid of foot binding, traditional exams, torture and death by a thousand cuts. Manchus and Han Chinese were now allowed to intermarry, although Han Chinese women were still not allowed to be candidates for the imperial consort selection. Male-female segregation was done away with, women were now allowed to go to school and go out in public. Tissy also put an end to the opium epidemic in China. She worked with Britain to create a 10-year plan to get rid of opium in China by raising taxes, teaching former opium farmers to plant new crops, and eventually banning the import of opium altogether. Tissy was even more ambitious because she declared that China would become a constitutional monarchy, comparable to the one in Great Britain. However, the document emphasised that the Qing emperor had the final say-so in terms of decision-making powers. So Tizi still couldn't completely give up control for the Qing dynasty. Not long after that, Tizi's health took a serious turn for the worse. In 1907, she suffered a stroke, and in 1908, both her and Guangxi were dying. Guangxi had always suffered from ill health. He had chronic incontinence, bad lungs, a weak pulse, a bad back. You name it, he probably got it. And on the 14th of November 1908, the 38-year-old Guangxi passed away. At the time, Guangxi's death was easily attributed to his poor health, but in 2008, which is really recent, researchers found out that Guangxi actually died of arsenic poisoning. The murderer is actually lost to history, although a lot of people understandably place the blame on Cixi. I don't know whether it's true, 
she definitely could have had a motive for it if she knew that she was dying and she didn't want Guangxi to mess things up then I can see why she would want him to die plus she probably had a bit of a vendetta on him considering that she thought that he wanted to kill her at one point but we're never gonna know 100% who murdered the emperor the day after the emperor's passing, Cixi held a grand council meeting to talk about what would happen now that Guangxi had died. Later that day, though, Cixi's condition worsened and she was soon on her deathbed. Cixi named her great-nephew as the successor to the throne and he would be Emperor Pui. And on the 15th of November 1908, Cixi passed away at 72 years old. After Guangxi's death, Emperor Pui came to the throne and he was to be the last ruler of the Qing dynasty. In 1911, Qing rule was overthrown in what became known as the Xinhai Revolution and the Great Qing became the Republic of China. A year later, the Empress Dowager Longyu, the late Emperor Guangxi's empress, signed an abdication decree in the name of the six-year-old emperor. 20 years after Cixi's death, her remains were disturbed by a group of soldiers who stole the treasures that had been left in her tomb and her corpse was left bare. I think that is so disrespectful. I just think that is absolutely disgraceful to go into somebody's tomb and just plunder and pillage. I understand why, because you want the money, but I just, I think they need some bad karma for that. But History often remembers Cersei as a ruthless, manipulative tyrant who would do anything to stay in power, and that is true to an extent, but Cersei was so much more than that. Her story is a story of a girl who overcame a lot of adversity to go from rags to riches as the most powerful woman of her country, probably the world in her time. 